Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, and uh, welcome once again, and I want to thank you for joining me. Today, of course, is the third day of August of 2016, and uh, I just want to tell you that it has been a beautiful day, and uh, I just really uh, enjoy um, enjoyed this day. It's been a good day. So uh, I've got some kind of beeping going on here, so we're going to check it out real quick. But in the meantime, I hope and pray that uh, you've had a good day and um, that you just continue um, to have a blessed day. It's been warm, the weather has, and, and that's been really nice. So, Heavenly Father, we just thank you, dear Lord, and we just thank you for your love, and we thank you for all that you just continue to do for us, Lord, and we just pray that you just continue to be with each and every one of us as uh, we continue uh, through this day. And Lord, just bless those that are listening, and um, Heavenly Father, we just give you the praise in your Son, Jesus' name for each and everything that uh, we do and uh, will do. And now bless these words, dear Heavenly Father, uh, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can't figure out where that beeping is coming from. A little annoying, but hopefully we'll be able to, as, um, as we go along, uh, cease the noise. All right. Um, Now, uh, we are continuing with Like a Mustard Seed, and we're reading from the book of uh, The Guidepost, Know the Words of Jesus in 30 Days, by J. Stephen Lang. Go to sleep. So I think that's what that was. I believe it was, well, maybe that's what it wasn't. I do not know. But anyway, we'll continue on, and I hope that uh, you know the distraction won't be too um, bad. Okay, so as I uh, ended on the um, on Monday with small, hidden, and growing, he told another parable: the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. And that's Matthew chapter 13, verse 31 through 32. Now, Here's a case where literally, in this case, biologically, the Bible is not accurate. For we know now there are many plants which are smaller seeds than the mustard plant. But focusing on such matters misses the main point, which is that a mustard seed is a tiny, yet it grows into a very large plant. No one could guess from the size of the seed just how large the plant would be. Likewise, the kingdom of God seems small and insignificant at the beginning, but it grows astoundingly. Perhaps Jesus' original hearers remembered the words of Zechariah 4.10, who despises the day of small things. The plant Jesus referred to grows ten feet. Birds are 
were attracted to the seeds of the plant and could often be seen around it. In the parable, the birds of the air probably symbolize people coming from far off to enter the kingdom. In the Old Testament, a great empire was often symbolized by a tree, as in Daniel 4 and Ezekiel 7 and 31. Every great empire of the past, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome, had begun small but became huge. In the parable, this is a spiritual empire growing from a small beginning. The empire Jesus began has outlasted all others. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. And that's Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. The Greek says literally that the woman hid the leaven in the flour until it had worked through all of it. Hid is the key word. The leaven slowly and invisibly does its work. And an impatient watcher would think nothing at all was happening. But it was chemically changing a bland mass of flour and water into something pleasant-tasting and life-sustaining. The leaven here and elsewhere in the Bible is not yeast, but what we would call sourdough starter, fermented dough, that added into a batch of fresh dough to start the leavening process. The idea of the power of God being hidden may not be the only meaning of the parable. In a sense, the leavening power isn't hidden at all. Leave some dough and some leaven together for a while, and the change is visible for all to see. The dough rises, and in fact, it might be said that the leaven is a disruptive agent, turning some lifeless flour and water into something that almost looks alive. Strictly speaking, leaven upsets dough tremendously, changing it for the better, of course. Leaven is, in fact, a, a living thing that transforms lifeless things, flour and water, into something life-sustaining, bread. The parable of the leaven is an answer of Christianity critics who wonder why it did not more rapidly transform the immoral and corrupt Roman Empire. It did not happen overnight. The violent and popular gladiator games did not end for many centuries, even though most Christians stayed away from them or in times of persecution provided some of the entertainment themselves as they were put into the arena to be devoured by beasts. But in time, the horrors of the game did end as the Christians Respect for human life slowly worked its way into the violent culture. Likewise, the widespread slavery of the Roman Empire did not end right away. And sadly, it was not until the 1800s that Christian countries such as the nations of America and Europe finally abolished slavery. But it must be remembered that the nations that abolished slavery did so at the urging of a small but persistent Christian minorities. Non-Christian nations never seriously take abolishing slavery. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though, he's not, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as its grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And that's Mark chapter 4, verse 26 and 29. The kingdom is like something growing slowly and oppressively. It grows regardless of whether man and Tends it to or not. And it grows inevitably, and the harvest is inevitable as well. Jesus told this parable to encourage patience and faith that the kingdom was growing, even when the signs did not seem clear. Above all, the parable is intended to give hope. 
It was not intended to encourage laziness and spreading the gospel, but to give encouragement to those who were in the cause without seeing immediate results. If it's well with the old saying that man thinks in days while God thinks in centuries. James, no doubt, had the parable in mind when he wrote to address the concern of the early Christians about why Jesus was being slow to come back to earth. Be patient, then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You, too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And that's James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Once having been asked by a Pharisee when of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. And that's Luke chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. Elsewhere in this book, we will see Jesus having confrontations with the Pharisees, the Jewish laymen, who were regarded as devout, but who were mostly hostile to Jesus. Here, the encounter does not seem hostile. An intelligent question is raised. Jesus has announced the kingdom of God is near. When will it come? And Jesus answers that people are not to look for a time or a place of the kingdom arrival. The fact that they are asking means they don't recognize whom they are talking to, that the kingdom is already there if they are willing to accept it. It does not come with careful observation. That is, it can't be detected visibly. As on the other occasions, people are wanting a supernatural sign. The kingdom is, Jesus says, within you. The Greek adverb entos, which is E-N-T-O-S, usually means within, spiritually. And the phrase entos homon, which is H-U-M-O-N, can mean within you, or in your midst, or within your grasp. It is possible Jesus intended all three meanings, within you, would mean within your hearts and an inward reality in your midst means is where Jesus is and in the things he does and says. Within your grasp or your reach means it's available if you desire. All three meanings exclude the material worldly kingdom that so many of the Jews hope for. Here's a did-you-know moment. The noted Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy, author of War and Peace, and Anna Karina, also wrote a philosophical book titled The Kingdom of God is Within You. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one great value, he went away and sold everything he had and brought it. And that's Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 46. At times, Jesus told his listeners that being his followers would involve self-denial and sacrifice. Here, the positive side of renunciation and self-denial is seen. The kingdom is far more valuable than whatever we give up in order to be a part of it. The men in both parables are good examples of being wise as serpents, as Jesus commended. They are shrewd enough to discern when they have found the best investment ever. Neither is throwing money away. Quite the contrary. In those days, homes of the average person were not safe places to store money or valuables, as Jesus observed in the statement about thieves literally digging into the mud clay houses 
of the region. That's Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. It was common and prudent practice to hide valuables in the ground. The the practice wasn't limited to ancient times, for throughout history people have in times of war and invasion done so with their valuables. This widespread practice is obviously what lies behind the many stories about buried treasure. There is always the hope that whoever buried the valuables never returned to retrieve them, or perhaps forgot where they were. In the first parable, the man stumbles upon a treasure unexpectedly. In the second, he is diligently seeking what he eventually finds. In both cases, the kingdom of God, being under God's rule, is seen as something valuable and wonderful. And in the case of the pearl, something exquisitely beautiful. Thus, did Jesus' teaching affect some of the people he encountered? Some have been diligently searched. Others were going about their daily lives. But in either case, they realized they had found something valuable. Pearls were in the ancient times the most valuable of all gems, even above rubies and diamonds and sapphires. When the gates of heaven are described as being made of pearl, it means the gates are the most beautiful and valuable of all things. And that's Revelation chapter uh, 21, verse 21. Note that a man who finds the treasure feels joy. Joy is an overlooked theme of the Bible, and no wonder for too much of what is called religion is amazingly joyless. The idea that Christianity is about believing in God and being nice to people isn't wrong, but woefully incomplete. Where true faith is, joy is. Part of becoming like little children, which Jesus said was necessary, is experiencing genuine self-forgetting joy. Like the giggling infant who at the moment feels nothing but pure pleasure. And Acts chapter 8 verse 8 says that there was great joy in that city when people came to believe in the gospel. Paul who told the Christians to be joyful always. First Thessalonians chapter 5.16 described the kingdom of God as righteous peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans Chapter four, fourteen, uh, chapter fourteen, verse seventeen, and people of faith are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, and that's First Peter, chapter one, verse eight. What a pity! So few people of faith act as overjoyed as the man who found the treasure hidden in the field. Now, a cultural insight here, similitudes. When the Bible scholar Jerome translated the Greek New Testament into Latin in the 400s, he chose not to translate the Greek word parabel, which means like comparison or smile. In the 1300s, when John Wycliffe, followers translated from Latin into English, they also retained the word Parable. William Pendel, translating from Greek to English in the 1520s, used similitude, an odd choice for Tyndale, who usually preferred a shorter word over a longer. And when Richard Trevire published his reversion of Tyndale's translation in 1539, he used parable, and most English versions have done the same. We can thank Trevar. What we don't have to read or discuss the similitude of the sore. Parables of Separation Jesus had come to announce the good news of the kingdom. It was in fact good news to those who accepted it, but bad news to those who rejected it. Here we will take a look at some parable dealing with different fates of those who accepted the news and those who rejected it.
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But with everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and informed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy, an enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them out? He says, No, he answered, because while you're pulling out the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let them both, both grow together until the harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good news stands for the sons of kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so at the will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And that was Matthew 13, verse 24, 30, 37, and 43. And our memory verse, of course, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Like the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds are concerned not with hostile world of unbelievers, but with hypocrites and half-hearted believers within the community of faith. Jesus had a common weed called donel, which resembles wheat so that so much that not until the harvest will the two plants be separated, the wheat to be stored and kept for food, the darnel to be thrown out and burned. The separation is the work of God and his angels, for the plants themselves are not always certain which of their followers are wheat and which are weeds. In some sense, the parable is an illustration of Jesus' command, judge not. We may put a great deal in stock in our own powers of discernment, but we are not God. Only he can judge rightly and not based on fleeting glimpses of another person's life, but on the whole life, the big picture. The parable is a warning against misplaced zeal when trying to perform the separation before the time of harvest. The individual Christian can never look with disdain on a sinful church because he himself also experiences his own sinfulness. The gnashing of teeth is often thought to be in remorse or anguish, but in fact it implies anger, as in Acts chapter 7, verse 54 and Psalms chapter 112, verse 10, those cast in the fire of Genoa weep out of sorrow, but gnash their teeth in anger at God, at themselves, at those who made it to heaven. Matthew records Jesus referring to the gnashing of teeth five times. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it to the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish baskets, but threw away the bad. This is how it will end of the age. The angels will come down and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's Matthew chapter 13, verse 47 and 50. When reading this parable, it's helpful to remember that much of Jesus' teaching was done by the large lake called the Sea of Galilee, which in those days was the site of a large fishing industry. Four of Jesus' own disciples were fishermen. The large net being referred to here was the fisherman's seam or dragnet. 
It was rectangular and weighed and weighted so that when placed in the water, it stood upright. Tied to the boat or two boats with cords, it captured the various kinds of fish and moved forward. The net itself did not, of course, separate the good fish from the bad. That was the task of the fishermen. In the parable, the separation the separators are the angels, God's agents, who, unlike humans with our faulty judgments, can wisely discern which is good and which is bad. Cultural insight here. The parable of the net with all kinds of fish is connected with the fishing story told in John chapter 21. After Jesus' resurrection, the disciples are fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus on the shore tells them to cast their nets on the right side of the boat. They do, as he tells them, and they take in so many fish that the net is full. They catch 153 fish in all. Since John's gospel often uses about when he is stating a number, readers have puzzled over why the mention precisely 153 fish. All sorts of bizarre interpretations have been proposed. One that must seem sensible is put forth by a scholar Jerome in the early 400s when he wrote that Opium, a Greek writer on nature, had stated that there were 153 different kinds of fish. Obviously, this is wrong from a scientific standpoint, but for John's mention of 153 uh, might ring a bell. Given the interpretation that the disciples had caught one of every kind of fish that existed, this would be a living illustration of the parable of the net, where presumably the disciples would have to sort through the fish, throwing away the bad. Thus the disciples, the ones Jesus called fishers and men, had caught every kind of fish, a symbol that apostles would indeed take the gospel to all the world as Jesus had instructed them. There is, of course, a more down-to-earth interpretation of the 153 fish. The disciples were so awed by the huge catch, so huge that John chapter 21 verse 11 mentions that the net was not torn, that they counted all the fish, dazzled at just how many they hauled in. The precise number is probably the author's way of saying, I was there, and amazingly, this is how many fish were caught exactly. Many are invited, but the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent a servant to those who had invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I've invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came, to see the guest, he noticed a man there was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he said, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. And that's Matthew chapter 22 verse 1 and 4. The people of Jesus' day could imagine nothing more joyous than a wedding celebration. This is one of the several times in the gospel that Jesus speaks of joy, of being part of the kingdom, 
of God, comparing it to a wedding banquet. The king of the parable is, of course, God. The joyous wedding banquet he invites people to is the kingdom. Those invited, the Jews, choose not to come. Worse, they mistreat and even kill the servants who bring the invitation. The servants represent the many prophets God has sent over the centuries. Since the Jews, the first ones invited, did not respond to them, God invites the outsiders, the Gentiles, non-Jews, to the banquet. Many of Jesus' listeners would have found this disturbing since most Jews then did not believe the Gentiles could be saved. Thus far, the parable has been a blunt statement of the Jews' ingratitude toward God. But in the second part of the parable, verses 11 and 14, a new twist is given. All people of the world are invited to the wedding feast, but such guest has to wear appropriate clothing, or they will be cast out. Heaven is open to all, not just the Jews, but the guests at the feast must be properly attired, morally and spiritually. The probable meaning of the improper attire is that the man was not a repentant convert. There is no general salvation, but each guest is being evaluated individually. A person is saved not because he is part of Israel or a church, but because he himself is properly dressed for the king. Many people, but few, are chosen. The last verse of the parable is often used in a scholar, scholarly arrangements about uh, predestination. But it is doubtful that Jesus intended his words to either support or deny predestination. The called are simply those who hear the word of God, his invitation to salvation, while the chosen are those who respond to it. So, we're going to uh, have this now. uh, That's the end of that reading. So, putting the word to work. Having finished this chapter, how would you explain the kingdom of God to an unbeliever? The parables of the eleven and the mustard seed remind us that great things often come into being slowly and gradually. What are those missions, organizations, or movements you are involved with that in time have proved faithful? And the parable of the weeds and the dragnet remind us not to make judgments about who we think is in our outside the kingdom of God in the days ahead. Keep these parables in mind when you're tempted to judge someone else harshly. And the parables of the treasure and the wedding banquet represent the kingdom of God as joyous in nature. Who are the people who you know seem to express this joy, whose faith in God seems to bring them genuine pleasure? And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you or in your midst. In what way do you sense the kingdom of God as a present reality in your life, in the life of your religious fellowship? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll answer this last one, because uh, as as today um, is Wednesday, and of course um, we gather uh, together, uh, Wednesday afternoon or Wednesday evening here in a couple of hours we'll get together and I really do enjoy my uh, my Christian family because we look after each other uh, we there's a genuine feeling of care and love and anytime we get together we feel we feel Feel the Lord. The Lord is with us, and it is just so totally awesome. <laughs> so totally awesome. And and right now we're we're uh, we're doing a teaching. Uh, they're teaching, and heaven forbid, but I forgot. Boy, with age, sometimes you 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 you're here, and then you're gone. But anyway, I'm really enjoying that teaching. So, but I'm looking forward to that. And um, 
how how the Lord is present in, in my life. Uh, he, today at work, it was a slow day, but it was very, very comfortable. You know, uh, there was some activity that I've been involved in that I was worried, not worried about, concerned about maybe. You know, I don't like to say I'm worried about things because I know I don't need to worry about anything. You know, the Lord is there for me 24-7. And it took me a while to get to that point where, uh, you know, I acknowledged and I surrender to him all things. You know, and and least of all, you know, it's like, okay, I, I surrendered my family. I surrendered my job. You know, I surrendered this. I surrendered that. And the last thing I surrendered was my finances, you know. And I want to tell you, when I did that, I have been just financially blessed. I really have. And uh, it's amazing. I mean, you know, I have money to pay my bills. I even have money to, uh, um, you know, do a little extra car needed work on. And it was just a joy to go to, you know, my mechanic and say, okay, you know, what's going on? And he told me and he gave me the bill and I just smiled and I just said, okay, well, thank you, Lord. And I really appreciate you because, I mean, he's been taking care of my car for for many years and uh, he does a good job and he's really a blessing in my life. But it was just that joy, that inner peace, that inner joy that I did not have to say, uh, well, uh, uh, let me pay you this. And then, you know, when you know, I get some more funds, I'll come back and, and pay you the rest. I was able just to take care of that bill, and that is done. And that's just such a joy, such a joy. Well, listen, I, I wanted to do, uh, it seems like I've got a few more minutes here, and there was something that uh, kind of touched my heart today, and uh, I want to share share with you uh, a few minutes uh yeah, I, I got an hour here, so I mean, this we're talking now uh, at uh, 20. Uh, so if you'll bear with me, like 24 minutes. Uh, what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to I'm going to turn on some music that I really enjoy. It's really comfortable. It's really peaceful. And what I want you to do is just kind of sit back, relax. If you have the opportunity, just sit back, relax, kind of close your eyes, and just concentrate on on the Lord. I mean, not. You know what's going on, not dinner, not got to take care of this, not got to take care of that. But I just want you to spend spend a few minutes with me just uh, just concentrating on the Lord. Now, if you'll give me just a half a second, I'll get the music started. And there's some there's uh, this book I've got also It's called Powerful Prayers of Courage. And I'm going to read a couple of those uh, while we get into the presence of the Lord. Hold on just a second. Be right back. So the music that is playing in the background is called, uh, well, soulful music. <laughs> uh, smooth worship. Smooth worship done by Sam Levine. So if you have an opportunity to pick that up, I would. It is an awesome, you know, CD, and I really like it. It's a uh, smooth jazz worship experience I hope it's not too loud I might need to turn it down just a little bit uh, hello there and welcome and I'm doing fine and um, thank you for joining me okie dokie well, I may go just turn this down just a few notches because I did turn it up just a little bit too loud is almost halfway across the rim. There we go. 
All right. I'm going to read as a, and, and then I'm going to just, uh, we're just going to sit back and listen to this for a few minutes. And I just hope and pray that you, uh, you know, come with me, get into the experience of enjoying the peace and comfort in the Lord. Because our Heavenly Father is always accessible to us, our love and loves us so deeply speaking with Him may seem as easy as making a phone call. And much of the time is just that easy. Nevertheless, there are times when praying is simply something we just don't want to do. That's when there's an imposing wall between God and us. Whether that wall is erected by our sins, anger, disappointment, depression, or just plain laziness. It takes courageous effort to scale the wall we built and once again converse with our Father. When we do, He always welcomes us with open Interestingly, the courage we need to approach His throne of grace is itself a gift that God has given us through the Holy Spirit, whose power embodies us to speak to the Almighty Lord, the universe. Such power infuses our prayers with courage, not only to open up to our Creator, but also to live a life of boldness and conviction. Others have prayed and lived this way. That is in the Spirit. So, let's enjoy this time together. Prayer opens the door to courage. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And that's Joshua, chapter 1, verse 9. Seeking courage, Lord, I bundle my fears and place them in your hands. Too heavy for me, they wither to nothing in your grasp. Blessed be the ties that bind our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour our adorant praise. Our fears, our hopes, our aims are one. Our comforts and our cares. When we asunder apart, it gives us inward pain. But we shall still joined in heart and hope to meet again. And that was John Fawcett. Where there is lack, faith shouts abundance. Where there is despair, faith sings joy. And where there is fear, faith whispers courage. Lord, I come to you boldly and gladly. Accept me as your child and meet my needs. Prayer is a powerful thing, for God has bound and tied himself there too. None can believe how powerful prayer is and what it's able to affect but those who have learned it by experience. And that was Martin Luther. God will not delay a minute longer than necessary to bring us the direction answers and relief we seek and pray for. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen thy heart. And that's Psalms 27, 14. It takes moral courage to grieve it requires religious courage to rejoice. When the darkness casts shadows upon us and the answers are nowhere in sight, 
Hope lifts us up on a wing and a prayer and carries us back to the light. Lord, please be with my strength. When I am scared, please make me brave. When I'm steady, please bring your stability to me. I look to your power for an escape from the pain. I welcome your comfort. Amen. Faith is not merely praying upon your knees at night. Faith is not merely straying through the darkness into light. Faith is not merely waiting for the glory that may be. Faith is the brave endeavor, the splendid enterprise, the strength to serve whatever conditions may arise. Pray your prayers and stand back and watch God work. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And that's James chapter 5, verse 16. Oh, Heavenly Father, I feel my heart panic. I'm so afraid because my world seems to be in such a horrible jeopardy. Help me turn to you for courage during this dreadful time. Increase my faith and strengthen my confidence in your care for my welfare. Amen. The night has given us to take breath to pray, to drink deep at the fountain of power, the day to use the strength which has been given us to go forth to work with it till the evening. And that was Florence Nightingale. Pressures in our lives can crowd out the joy. Let's remember to pray and ask God to give us the courage to discover renewed joy. Be patient with everyone, but above all with yourself. Do not be disheartened for your imperfections, but always rise up with fresh courage. How are we to be patient in dealing with our own faults if we are impatient in dealing with our own? And that's Francis. Frank St. Francis de Sales. And Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fall. And that's Luke chapter 22, verse 32. The older I grow in years, the more the wonder and the joy increase. When I see the power of these words of Jesus, I have called you friends to move the human heart. That one word, friend, breaks down each barrier of reserve and we have boldness in his presence. Our hearts go out in love to meet his love. And that's Charles F. Andrea. I like to pray to be spared of all pain, but life is full of pain. No one escapes it. Better to ask God to be near whenever it comes. Faith can give us courage to face the uncertainties of the future. And that's Martin Luther King, Jr. Most of us don't pray on our races because we're deeply aware that it will cost us something more than time, more than money, more than faith, more than becoming religious. To lay hold of prayer as my own available resource for effective, practical daily use as an abiding certainty in an unpredictable world will cost me one thing, honesty. And that's Jack W. Hayward. You call me to courage, Lord, but incrementally, as a child, emboldened to walk 
long, placing each small foot in the larger footprints. As I am following you, you show me a path marked out step by step that leads to safety. Every silent prayer is heard in heaven. Prayer is a great weapon, a rich treasure, a wealth that is never exalted, an undisturbed refuge, a cause of tranquility, the root of a multitude of blessings and their source. Oh, let him whose sorrow no relief can find trust in God and borrow ease for the heart and mind where the mourner weeping shreds the secret tear. God, his watch is keeping though none else be near. God will never leave thee all thy wants he knows fills the pain that grieves thee See thy cares and woes. Raise thy eyes to heaven when the spirits quell, when the tempest-driven heart and courage fail. All thy woe and sadness in this world below balance not the gladness thou in heaven shalt know. And that was done by Henrik Sigmund Oswald. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And that's Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Dear God, hear my prayer. I pray and in need of your meaningful blessings. Please take me into your arms. Give me the courage to keep going through difficult times and the fortitude to move beyond the outer illusions of pain and despair. Only you can heal me, God. In praise and thanks I pray. Amen. While structure... While struggles rage, we cling together by candlelight, drawing courage from one another until the dawn comes again. It is then that God will bring us a happier day. Heavenly Father, I once again just give you praise. I thank you for this opportunity to share your words. And Lord, I just pray that you just, that they touch those that believe, enrich their hearts, enlighten their spirits, encourage them to seek a closer relationship with you, that they want to go and dig deeper into your word, and that they want to share their word, your word, with others. And Lord, for those that happen to hear bits and pieces of this program, Lord, I just pray that that it entice of a what? What if I do that? What if I give my heart to God? What's going to happen to me? What will change? That seed planted, Lord, may it sprout. And may they come to the point of where they look at their life and they just say a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, my life is a mess. I have sinned greatly. And Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to change my life. I believe you sent your son, Jesus, to die on a cross for me. And through his resurrection, dear Lord, what he did for me gives me the opportunity to ask for your forgiveness. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins, dear Heavenly Father. 
come into my life. Take control. Change me. Make me new. Help me to walk in you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to change your life, all you got to do is say a prayer, something along that nature, but you got to mean it from the heart. And if you do, welcome. Because a wonderful transformation of your life is about to take place if you truly want to change. Once again, I want to thank you uh, for joining me as uh, I'm on my quest uh, to grow deeper in relationship with God and Father. I just hope and pray that these words that I share with you guys are encouraging in some form or fashion. And even if you are a believer and you don't want to step out and talk to somebody about faith, maybe you could just turn them on and say, hey, you know, go go check out some of these words this guy says and see what you think. You never know. We're all about planting seeds. We're all about wanting to bring more to the family. That's our joy. That's our peace. That's our comfort. That's part of our duty. So, I hope that you have enjoyed uh, this little break here. Into Sam Levine's Smooth Worship. I hope that you heard it correctly. I'll have to hear this back to see if it worked out okay. I've never done this before, so I hope it turned out okay. But uh, the background there is Sam Levine, a smooth jazz worship uh, experience. And it's called Smooth Worship. And the prayer, we're out of the powerful prayers of courage. A little booklet uh, I picked up and I don't, can't even tell you where it came from. But uh, if I find out, uh, I will let you know. Well, in the meantime, I, I, I only got a few more minutes here, so uh, we're going to wrap this up. And um, we will um, pick this up Friday. And uh, Friday we'll be reading To Seek and to save. We'll we'll begin now to seek and to save. And of course, we're reading the guideposts. Know the words of Jesus in 30 days by J. Stephen Lang. And I want to encourage each one of you because prayer, prayer is so important in our lives. So take a few minutes of each day, you know, you can, and really just concentrate on praying. Pray for our nation. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your family. Pray for yourself. Prayer is powerful. And I truly believe that if we start praying, as a nation, we can make things happen. Unfortunately, you know, we are just so this way and that way. That, um, But, I mean, it only takes a few. It only takes a few, as I read. It only takes a few of devoted believers in Christ to make a difference. Be bold. Be blessed. Stand up for what you believe. Speak out against wrong when you see it. Well, I tell you what, I want you to have a great and glorious afternoon 
and a blessed day tomorrow. Be kind. Be loving. Be sharing. Be giving. The blessings to come are immense. Thank you, Lord, once again. Bless these words and those that hear them. Your Son, Jesus' name. Have a great and glorious day and a wonderful tomorrow. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.